It's time for Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM. Greetings and welcome to Moment of Truth. I'm your host, David Moses, and it is a great pleasure to welcome to the show Colleen Cardinal. And Colleen is here as part of the co-founder of a 60s Scoop Network. Uh, And it's a grassroots collective of survivors based in Ottawa. And they uh, have a petition uh, sent to the government uh, for an apology uh, for the 60s Scoops survivors. So as a 60s Scoop survivor, I'm guessing you are yourself, of course. Yes, I am. I was uh, adopted with my sisters from Alberta and brought to Sault Ste. Marie, Ontario. And and can you give us a timeline of that? What when was uh, when when did this happen? So um, as far as I know, like looking at my paperwork, I was apprehended when I was one month old, my mm-hmm. sisters and I, and we were we probably went through about three or four foster homes because we didn't get actually adopted till 1975, uh-huh. and I was born in 1972, so mm-hmm. that's about three years. Right. And um, the home I remember like going on the plane and that, but, um, um, but all of a sudden I was in this house with these strangers and mm. <laughs> calling them mom and dad. So, um, right. yeah, that was, and, um, and where you said your sisters was, was that, does that mean there were three of you? Yeah. So I had two older sisters. Mm-hmm. Um, my oldest sister, uh, Charmaine, uh, was, she's, she was killed in 1990. So, oh. um, sorry to hear about, that. you know, yeah, I have a, you know, I do a lot of work with Missing and Murdered Indigenous Women mm. uh, movement also. Right. So. But I have two older sisters. Uh, one's passed away. And um, yeah, we're, it's just, uh, it's impacted our life, our whole life, plus our children's mm. lives. So. Right. Um, so as you grew up, uh, were you aware uh, uh, Were you aware that you, obvi- I guess you obviously were aware that you were adopted? Well, I didn't really know I was adopted till I was a little bit older, probably around 10 or 11. And I actually didn't know I was Native until I was a teenager. Mm. So it, it was just by, by chance that we were walking through the mall. And I asked my adopted mother, how come we don't see any Indians anywhere? Because for me, like Indians, like wore headdresses and had bows and arrows and, right. you know, they're real, real like the TV version, right? Mm-hmm. But I never seen them at the mall. And she said, you know, you're Indian. And I was just like, what? I am not. I was so angry. And mm. everything I knew about being native, um, that's the terminology back in the day, like was bad, right? Yeah. So was- I had already internalized racism about being Indigenous. Wow. So that must have been... It's very strange for you, both you and your sisters, then to to have that realization. What kind of a how did what did that do 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 to you? What what did you do at that point? Well, I mean, you just kind of keep going, but like you know, I didn't really get a sense of what being indigenous and what you know. I thought all Indians were the same. I didn't realize there was over like six hundred nations in Canada like there's nobody to give me context not even my my adoptive parents so even when I reunited with my 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 biological parents like they had no culture they were residential school survivors so they had nothing they had nothing to offer us uh in ways of culture or who they were you know to even instill pride about being you know Nehia. Mm. Uh, so it took a long time for me to actually like be proud of who I am 
it wasn't until I was in my 30s that I began to relearn culture and um, unlearn all the stuff that had been pretty much brainwashed into my head. Mm. You said you, you finally met your biological parents. Uh, what mm-hmm. was that process like and how did that come about? Oh, well, you know, you think, you know, when you're a child, you, you know, when I found out I was adopted, uh, all I did was long for who my parents were. And I imagine, you know, they were these fabulous, wealthy people and gorgeous <laughs> and always looking for me. And, and our reunion would be like, just wonderful, right? But it mm. wasn't like that at all. Actually, my, my biological parents, uh, my father's sober, but um, I don't have a good relationship with him because uh, I just never got close to men. And my doc- my biological mother was, was intoxicated when I met her. Mm. And uh, my mother, you know, I didn't realize how hard it had been for her to have all three of her children taken away from her yeah. and never see them again. Right. Like the grief and the shame yeah. and the anger she must have endured. Um, and I didn't understand why she drank so much, right? right. But, it, and you know, being a mother myself, I couldn't imagine having somebody taking my children from me, mm-hmm. not having any recourse to get them back and and to just accept that. You know, I, I just can't imagine. So it, it was not a great reunion, reunion. I'm grateful that I got to meet them. Well, they were still alive. Mm. My doctor or my biological mother passed away. Mm. Um, my whole biological family went through residential school, and they were very damaged by that. And most of them were self-medicating with mm-hmm. uh, solvents and mm. alcohol. It was rough. Yeah, yeah. Um, but but you know, you 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 shared a very interesting story and one that I believe other people need to hear. Uh, So I appreciate you sharing that about uh, what that was like to meet your biological parents and to have that dream shattered that you had been carrying with you about them and then to see the damage and realize that they had gone through the residential school system and and the damage that it caused them and understanding Uh what that could potentially do to any person Uh, as you say, not only going through the residential school system, but then having your children taken away from you uh, Uh and and not having any recourse to try to get them back. Yeah. What would that do to any of us? Yeah. Yeah. I I don't think a lot of Canadians have context of what, how damaging those systems were to our people. And, you know, residential school was bad. Not only did it destroy our culture, but it also, you know, a lot of those, those children were sexually and physically abused in those schools. Yep. So, um, and they self-medicated when they came out of those schools. Yeah. So, so going back to the '60s, scoop between nineteen between the nineteen fifties and nineties, uh, I guess around over twenty-two thousand five hundred Indigenous children uh, across Canada were were apprehended, as you say, and uh, by the child welfare agencies and taken and put with non-Indigenous foster and adoptive parents, and and as you say, lost uh, culture, identity, and. You're, you're one of those people along with your sisters. So you have been working on this a long time. You, uh, you went through that whole process of, uh, of trying to, and you got some, some payment for this uh, from the government. But you're reaching out now and you're saying along with others that it's not enough. No, not at all. I mean, I think like for a lot of people who aren't Indigenous, they, they don't even know what the 60 scoop is. Mm. 
they they just you know it sounds like something like ice cream or something but you know for us for a lot of us that were taken away and had our our identities altered like literally altered my birth certificate says i come from england because instead of my biological parents my adoptive parents are on there and it and it says they come from england so you know our identities have been altered and we can't change those we can't put our birth parents back on our birth certificate so You know, um, for us that have been taken out of the country and across provinces, you know, it's not enough to have a, like a one-time uh, common experience payment. There's nothing on record. There's no government apology or acknowledgement to state that this has happened. And it needs to happen. It mm-hmm. needs to be acknowledged federally um, that the Canadian government um, did this. Yeah. Also... I feel like they need to ask for our forgiveness and and say, like, can you forgive us for what we've done to your families? Um, and so it's important. Um, as little children, we're still waiting to be acknowledged that this happened to us. Mm-hmm. So. so how long have you been working on this? Well, I just we just started the campaign not too long ago, okay. um, and it it uh, officially was um, opened on September fifteenth, mm-hmm. and it closes on December fifteenth. Um, but I've been doing this work for a long time. Mm. <laughs> it feels like that's all I know how to do um, is is you know support and advocate on behalf of sixty scoop survivors everywhere because you know. Um, it's harder when we're doing it by ourselves, but if we do it collectively, mm-hmm. we have more, we have more voice, right? So it's bringing awareness, teaching people what happened and asking them to be a part of that network. And I'm sure you didn't, you didn't take this on lightly. You, you thought about this and I'm sure you spoke with other survivors about the idea of putting a petition together and go and going after the government for this apology. Well, yeah, of course, like there's, there's processes for the petition where you have to get, um, other folks to sign on to it Mm. before it can even reach uh, Parliament. Um, And, you know, this is something that we've talked about before, uh, before even the settlement. You know, we Mm. talked about, like, um, having a national apology, but what would that look like? And it's just because the settlement came up so quickly, um, it just got pushed to the wayside. Right. And they've had provincial apologies. Alberta's had a provincial apology, Saskatchewan, and... um, Manitoba, right. but they they really never acknowledged the children that were taken out of provinces or out of country and that mm. still live overseas, right? So right. it's more than just a provincial thing. It's a federal, national um, incident that happened right. in, in Canada. Right. Now, the, the settlement that you referred to, that was in 2018, and the government announced that it was going to uh, settle this uh, class action uh, agreement. Um, with the survivors. Um, now there's about what, 34, over 34,000 claims. Initially, I think like the actuary study was, uh, they, they estimated 22,500 would be eligible for the settlement, but actually almost 35,000 people applied and they're oh, less than halfway through those, um, those settlements. So it, it's, People are still waiting for acknowledgement. They're still waiting to find out if they qualify, right? Right. So the government's way behind. How how have you found that process yourself? Are are you still going through it or have you had yours settled? And and how did you find that process if you did? 
Um, uh, you know, this, the, the common experience payment for me, um, I wasn't, you know, for some people it was very triggering, but for me it was just like, um, very straightforward. The forms are easy to fill out. They didn't ask a lot. It was just, it had nothing to do with your experience inside the house. Mm-hmm. It only cared about if you were adopted or went through foster care, if you were raised in a non-Indigenous household, and to confirm it. That's it. Mm-hmm. You didn't have to. It wasn't about your experiences or trauma. So mm-hmm. it wasn't a very triggering experience for me. But actually, when I did get my payment, I cried my eyes out. Because, you know, I think a lot of us, it was just, here's some money. Here's right. the money for your whole life that, you know, kind of messed your family up. Messed your life up. Here's here's twenty one thousand dollars and yeah. that's it. We're done. But it was I, it was it was but, awful. But I guess at the same time, it was also an acknowledgement on the government's part because they had given you some money, right? Well, it's not really the only reason that they gave the money was because they were found to be in breach. Yeah. <laughs> That's the only reason. It's not right. really a, an acknowledgement. It's more of like, well, we're guilty. So yes. here. I, I guess that's it, what I not, was saying. It was like that acknowledgement yeah. that they were guilty of this. That's what I was trying to say. Yeah, but it's not the same. No. Because they were found to be guilty. Not. Yes. Um, it's not as yes. them saying, listen, we messed up. Yeah. You know. So it's not the same. Um, and I know that a lot of survivors, and I know a lot of survivors, a lot of us cried when we got our payment because it was just, there's so much hurt attached to that. Of course. About being, I don't know, it's just, it was just, it was hard. Yeah. It was hard. My guest is Colleen Cardinal, and she's a co-founder of the 60s Scoop Network. They are looking to try and get an apology from the government of Canada for the 60s Scoop. We've been talking about that. And Colleen, uh, along with her sisters, uh, were part of that 60s Scoop. And they, along with about 34,000 other Indigenous kids uh, right across the country from about 1950s, in the 1950s to the 1990s. Now, Colleen, I'm wondering about the process. You said that you, you opened this, uh, this petition uh, to try and get this brought forward in September. It's going to close in December. Uh, mm-hmm. It's an e-petition, is that, is that understand? And you need, you need about 500 signatures? Yeah, uh, so it's an e-petition. Um, it, one of the the MLAs, Gord Johns from, mm-hmm. uh, I think he's from BC, he actually uh, supports that. He's a member of parliament, so he supported the petition and he's hosting it. Um, and then what will happen is when it closes, it'll be tabled um, at the parliament. Um, I don't actually know the whole process, but mm-hmm. the point is to get it on the agenda um, to be heard so that... Um, people can vote on it at uh, the parliament process. Right. The, that whole thing. So the whole point is to kind of put some pressure on the prime minister that all these people are interested. So we, we're at about 4,577 4, 4, signatures. Wow. Um, so we, we've really collected a lot. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's due to, you know, Amnesty International actually like, supporting this and amplifying it on their social media mm. networks and um, helping with uh, that campaign. 
So I'm very grateful for their work. Yeah, that's that's also great. Now, you mentioned one government official, uh, Gord Johns from B.C. Have you spoken mm-hmm. with other government representatives uh, on this idea or, or approached them with it at all? Um, I have, actually. In the past, I've... I've appealed to certain people at the government, the federal government level mm-hmm. about this. Mm-hmm. Uh, we started doing this process, geez, back in 2016, where mm-hmm. we were trying to meet with um, Minister Carolyn Bennett and um, um, her officials. Mm-hmm. There was another person. Um, but anyways, I, I had sent them letters and said, listen, like we want to talk about an apology. And, and and a forgiveness ceremony where we not only do this in parliament, but we do this in ceremony mm. in, in the ways that we know how to as mm-hmm. First Nation people. Mm-hmm. So at the time, it wasn't a good time for them because parliament was going into, I don't know, there was, and, and then the pandemic happened. So mm-hmm. it's just a lot of stuff where it's not good on their terms. Um, I think because at the time there was an election happening too, right. and it wasn't on their agenda. Like yeah. it was just they sure. they couldn't use it right. as part of their campaign. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, um, y- you know, is it ever a good time for them uh, in bringing <laughs> those kind of things to their attention? But I don't know. <laughs> but you, at least you you raised it with them, and you said it wasn't uh, as you said they said it wasn't a good time for them with the things that they put in. in uh, they they addressed with you, however. What was your sense of the idea when you presented it to them? Do you think it was something that oh, they might Carolyn be open to? Carolyn Bennett was very open to it. Mm. You know, um, you know, I've sat with Carolyn Bennett a few times mm. and, you know, just explained things face to face and, and, you know, what, what would, what would be good mm. for 60 scoop survivors from our perspective as a survivor? And, you know, she listened, but, mm. I mean, I don't think she really had, is in charge of that. So, you know, the idea is to, to you know, to, to meet with the prime minister um, and talk to him about this. So, you know, she can only do so much as the minister herself. Sure. Um, but, but, uh, but you've also mentioned that some of the provinces have made their apologies as well. That I would yeah. think that that adds some weight to the idea of, of having this as a, a national apology then. Exactly. Yeah. And I mean, not every province is willing to do um, that work, right? Like mm-hmm. I know Alberta worked really. The folks in Alberta, the adoptees out there, they the, the, they worked really hard to with the government there, the provincial government, to to get that to extract that apology from the government. But um, not every province is willing to do that. So mm-hmm. um, it, it's time for that to be acknowledged. Like the residential school era, this needs to be acknowledged too and on record. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Um, so you say you've now collected about 4,500 signatures on the petition, the e-petition so far. Yes. Wow, that's great. I wasn't aware that when students or when, when kids were, were adopted out from the child welfare system that they would go beyond the border. It just didn't register with me that they would go beyond the borders of, of Canada, but I guess that's true. Uh, do you have any sense of how many, how many kids went out, say, uh, over, over the, the pond to, to Europe or, or elsewhere? Well, now that you bring that up, I am the one who created the GIS mapping project to map where we've been taken from, oh. from our homelands mm-hmm. to 
wherever in the world. So that's up on our website. It's uh, on sweetiescoopnetwork.org. Oh, okay. And we have um, we have quite a few people who've been taken um, to Europe, um, to New Zealand, Australia, and so on. And um, it maps their journey from when they know they were taken and then when they've repatriated back to Canada. Mm. So um, that's a that's a first of its kind GIS, GIS uh, mapping project. Um, you know, it won't give us exact numbers, but um, because not everybody will be able to access the map, depending on, yeah. you know, if they have that ability to get onto the internet and use it and so on. But the idea is to, like, show folks like yourself what the 60 scoop looks like because a lot of people were shocked when they found out that children were taken like indigenous children Mm. were taken Mm. out of the country you know it was very aggressive at that time to um, place indigenous children uh, into non-indigenous homes because so many children were in foster care Mm -hmm. and literally that's the fallout from the residential schools yeah um you know and what we're seeing is the same phenomenon happen again you know, the 60 scoop survivors who are struggling um, and have had their children apprehended are the ones that are in foster care now. Yeah. And so on and so on. It's just yeah. an ongoing cycle. Yeah, we, we've heard a lot about the ongoing situation with, of course, uh, the child welfare system and Indigenous kids. You, you've said you've mapped this GIS system, which is great. I'm glad I brought that up so that you could uh, mention mm-hmm. that for people that might be mm-hmm. interested to go and find out about that, which is which is good. And you said that people can find out by going to the 60scoopnetwork.org, which is your, your website. Yeah, so we have a mapping uh, link on there, mm-hmm. and it opens up to a live map showing um, the displacements of Indigenous children. So the people that participate in that, it's voluntary, it's it's participatory. Mm-hmm. You don't have to reveal your information. You can just put uh, where you were taken from and where you were taken to, or you have the option of adding a story. Um, so mm-hmm. you can add your details about what happened to you, what your repatriation was like, or if you're looking for uh, family members, you know, so there's no actual official repatriation um program or search database or anything so that's what this mapping project uh, was designed to do was to you know have three different different levels as a teaching tool to show people what the displacement looks like and also um, you know a tool to for families to find each other and a way to tell their story right uh, that sounds wonderful in, in terms of at least, I guess, starting the road to, to healing. Uh, you know, you had mentioned that you were adopted out with your sisters. and mm-hmm. But you also mentioned about your your birth certificate. And that birth certificate indicated that it didn't indicate your your uh, your, your biological parents or, or that side of your family. It indicated your adopted parents who came from England. And that's what was on that. So I'm wondering how difficult... Is it that you're hearing about for, you just mentioned, you know, other kids may be looking for family members. How difficult is this for, for kids and now adults uh, trying, to, trying to reconnect with their culture, with maybe other family members that could have been separated? How, how easy or difficult is it, this process? I think it's tremendously difficult because there's nothing in place to guide to guide folks, a lot of them have done the footwork themselves. Mm. So say they're, you know, they grew up in the States. Mm. They have, they have the horrendous job of finding their records 
finding out where they come from. And, and it's not obvious, right? So they either have to ask their adoptive parents or find the paperwork themselves and then trace where they came from, uh, whether it's by contacting the band office or um, doing a freedom of information uh, inquiry mm. to find out where they came from. And mm. then they have to um, find those parents. Um, they also have to, uh, if they're status, they have to apply for their status. Mm. So they have to find out all this information on their own. And then, you know, not every, re- uh, like, you know, the people that have, have uh, um, been able to reunite with their biological families, like it sounds like a wonderful experience, but there's a lot of issues there, right? Sure. So you're, you're reuniting with families that have um, lived in grief and shame mm-hmm. and anger yeah. and uh, might not understand, you know, sure. what, you, where, where you've been raised and how different you talk and mm-hmm. look. Mm-hmm. Our mannerisms are very different because we're raised with white people, right? Sure. sure. So um, there's a lot of issues with that. And then finding yeah. culture, it just, it's just not there. <laughs> you yes. have to like really find people who have proper teachings that you can trust Um it's it's just really hard to navigate. It can take your whole life to do this work, sure. to find your way back to who you are. And some people are very lucky and they, they, they get there, but some people are still looking. Like there's a ton of 60 scoop survivors that are like in their 50s and 60s who have never reconnected with their culture. Mm-hmm. So one of the things that we did at the network was we started doing gatherings um, back in 2014, where we bring survivors together and we bring in elders and um, we would gently introduce them to the culture mm. in a way that was not intimidating, but, you know, it was a starting point for them sure. to heal. Yeah. yeah. Colleen, it's been fascinating speaking with you. I want to thank you for taking the time to, uh, you know, join us on the show and, and share with us this story about the 60 Scoop Network and about what you're trying to do and get this petition, this e-petition brought forward. Thank you very much. So if people want to sign the petition, they can go to our website, 60scoopnetwork.org, and there's a link for the petition there. Colleen Cardinal, she's the co-founder of the 60 Scoop Network, a grassroots collective of survivors based in Ottawa, and she's been speaking to us about their e petition that they have going. It's open now, started in September, and it's closing in December for people of the 60s Scoop. And if you want to find out more, as she mentioned, you can go to the 60scoopnetwork.org to find out about signing the petition and just about more uh, on the uh, on the 60s Scoop survivors as well. That's this part of the program. Stay right where you are. We're going to be right back with more. Now back to Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element, Element, Element FM. It's a pleasure to welcome uh, a couple of people to the show. We're going to be talking to them about the Art Museum at the University of Toronto presenting Immaterial Architecture Online. It's a series of newly commissioned projects for the screen space. With me is the curator, Yan Wu. And also we have Skawanadi, uh, and she is part of the, one of the artists, the five artists that are taking part in this immaterial architecture online. And uh, just a little bit more about the two of you. So, Yan, you were born in Shanghai, uh, now yes. based in Toronto, and you're yes. an independent curator, translator, and public art curator for the city of Markham. Yes, yeah, that's uh, that's all my hats. <laughs> wow, that's uh, that's quite a few. That's uh, good, good to see you're you're keeping busy. Right? Yeah, I guess uh, we'll try my best to stay out of trouble. 
<laughs> and Scalinati, uh, of course, you make art that addresses history, the future, and change. And you're pioneering new media projects, including the online gallery Chat Space and Mixed Reality Event Cyber Powwow. We had you on the show once before talking about that very thing. So uh, welcome back. And as we say, Scano Sego. Yeah, it's very nice to be back. I appreciate mm-hmm. it. Mm-hmm. But of course, today we're here to talk with you both about the immaterial architecture. Yeah, and as the curator, why don't you tell us a little bit about this? Why and how did this come about? Yes, and actually the idea is um, uh, emerged and at the beginning of the lockdown. Mm. And uh, I was scheduled to have a project with the art museum, and uh, that was supposed to happen in April. But then in March, and I remember it was March 13th, mm. and all of a sudden I think the entire world just uh, went upside down. So I think for a while, and we're trying to understand is how to move forward, but also at the same time we're trying to observe and um, um, around us what is happening and how can we reflect on the moment. Because mm-hmm. my work and is always trying to be about this intersection of um, um, uh, visual art and architecture in the public space. And uh, and also it's very interesting to think about is um, how architecture become in material sense is um, become this um, a structure of uh, a public space and how we connect and make a relationship with each other. So it was actually um, the director of our museum, Barbara Fisher, came to me and asked me, is am I interested and uh, to reshape this project and uh, thinking about doing a new series of new commissions for the screen space because I think we all know and from March and on, all of a sudden the screen space become the only space that we can make connections with the people. For example, like myself, I live alone. So for a long time like I don't really leave the house and so screen screen space really become the only space for me to connect with families and friends and also work and colleagues and uh, so also it makes us to think, and also one thing was interesting in the Barbara and I we find is um, um, at the time a lot of the project, like the art world entirely moving to the uh, screen space. That's something which completely, totally unprecedented in the past. And our fair has to build all those um, 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 uh, apps and uh, viewing rooms and the virtual rooms and the museums and the galleries all struggle at the time to create online content and mm-hmm. to stay in touch with the audience and by the same time we find it's because also you mentioned I was a translator and before we translate Lucy Lepart six years and a series of um, a books on conceptual art and a part of the conceptual art is um, a movement in the 60s and 70s is how to find of alternative means and by initiated by the artist and to uh, to disseminate their work and uh, and also a lot of media artists and make works at the time and uh, so we find it's interesting is this uh, it's it's present moment and also tying to a certain art movement in the past and that reflected in certain works. And so we decided, okay, why not? And we create a commission, a series of works to really consider the screen space as a medium and uh, how to explore the complexity of this medium and to create a series of work. It's not really out of, um, cause I think at the beginning of this uh, lockdown moment and you will sense the sense of uh, desperate so everybody feel like they're desperately to create content mm. and but I feel, we feel like okay maybe we passed that moment now it's the moment that we can explore and reflect on that moment and to explore the complexity of this medium and no longer as a backup plan 
So I think that's、uh, that's when we went to、um, the artist, and、uh, not necessarily as a new media artist. And、uh, and I think it's more about their work. It's really considered the screen space as a unique platform and medium.、Mm. Now the title itself, the name、uh, of this is. Immaterial architecture. It's an interesting name, of course, online. But why that name? What was it about immaterial architecture and taking and putting the word architecture in there? That's what really、uh, got my attention. Uh huh. Because I think it's really it's um the construction of it. I will say,、mm. and、uh, and I think also I have a background, and、uh, my early early background is in computer science.、Mm. So. And、uh, I really see it's、uh, the world and how we are connected. It's it's there's immaterial process and the procedures and the constructions that connects us. Even how the conversation we're having right now and、um, through voice we don't see each other and it's very weird that I'm staring at a computer. I don't see anything, but we're having a conversation and that's where we're creating a space among us, a moment. And to me, that is. Immature architecture.、Mm, yeah, it, that's very interesting.、Uh, it, and of course, this、uh, this art museum、uh, is is happening. It started on October twenty ninth, and it runs until、uh, November nineteenth. And it's part of this virtual art museum series of experiments in the virtual space,、uh, and、um, that, as you say, launched during the COVID nineteen、uh, closures. Um, Scalinetti, when you when you heard、uh, Yan talking there about the the use of architecture, I, I think back of of the kind of work that you do online and the、mm-hmm. kind of、uh, videos that you put together.、Um, how do you see that ar- that use of architecture、uh, being used in what you do?、Mm-hmm. Well, I think that. The close, so there's a few different ways I guess I could answer that question. I have to admit I don't think about architecture in the in much,、mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but I definitely build sets、mm-hmm. and environments、mm-hmm. for the movies that I make. Right,、um, and、uh, as well, of course, I've been thinking about this online. Living online for a very long time since CyberPow, which is like 1997, it started.、Mm-hmm. So I've definitely been thinking about the spaces that we occupy, you know, online and and how we occupy them. Like we have these physical bodies, and yes, those are sitting in front of a screen a lot of the time right now. But we also have our avatars who are occupying spaces.、Right. They are the, our virtual bodies in the virtual space. And、uh, so I think that's sort of one of the things I think about when Yan talks about architecture. Then the other thing that we discussed,、uh, Yan and I and Barbara Fisher, was the idea of the portal. So the screen can be a portal into another world, and that's what connects to my piece that I'll be showing.、Mm. And that piece is? It's called "Greetings from Skyworld."、Mm-hmm. And for those of you out there in Radio Land who have seen my other, my other machinima called "She Falls for Ages,"、mm-hmm. it takes place in the same universe、mm-hmm. as that,、uh, which is, you know, this universe, of course.、Right. <laughs> But、um, I, I guess I'd like to tell the story of Greetings from Skyworld because it began before this show. Actually,、mm-hmm. someone else asked me to make a piece that would be for screens, But that the screens would be outside, and it was for people passing by. So、mm-hmm. I conceived of a piece 
that was very short and nonverbal. And um, when Jan and uh, Barbara approached me, um, oh, that piece fell through because of lots of reasons, COVID being only one of them. Mm. Uh, so it didn't get made. And so when they told me uh, that they had this show with this idea, I said, oh, I have a piece that I had thought about doing for, you know, that I wanted to do for screens. And I was proposed and it was accepted, but never happened. And I described it and I will in a second. <laughs> they said... They said that it would fit very well into this show. And so um, I was really happy to get to make this piece. Mm. And what it is, is that in She Falls for Ages, so first of all, for people who haven't seen it, She Falls for Ages takes place in Skyworld, another planet. I've imagined Skyworld, which which figures in the Iroquois creation story, as a whole other planet. And they're a technologically advanced planet, thank you very much. <laughs> they live sustainably, they live peacefully. All the people on the planet have very different skin colors from one another. And in fact, you know, a blue person and a green person might have a pink baby. Yes. Like there's no, you don't know what you're going to get. So there's these six different colors on the planet and they're all, uh, they're all, you know, they live harmonious. They have no... They have no race. Mm. That's what I wanted to imagine a post-race place. So, mm. um, in the story that I tell, uh, Skyworld is dying. The planet is dying, and so a w- young woman decides to. Anyway, the, that's actually the, the main point. Sorry, mm-hmm. that mm-hmm. the planet is dying, and yes, certainly, Sky Woman. She goes through the portal. Yep. There's a portal right? Created by the uprooting of the celestial tree. Mm. She goes through the portal to come to earth. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, we just leave, then we follow sky woman and we assume that the planet has imploded or exploded or something bad. For greetings from sky world, I imagine that the planet didn't die Mm. and that our ancestors on that planet have used that portal to look for us Mm. ever since. And what we're seeing in the brief video that I've put together is after they have found us and the different people are greeting us and reminding us that they have not forgotten us Mm. and that they love us. Mm. That's it. That's great. Thank you for that description. (laughs) And, and, uh, and also the description of uh, uh, she falls, um, you know, as you were talking there, when you first started talking, what popped into my head was in another life, and seriously, in another another existence, not another existence, but in another line of work that I did, I used to work in visual presentation, which was windows, window presentation, and doing a store decor, you know, store um, mannequins and windows, right? You, you have to, and one, one of the things I remember uh, from that experience was this, uh, that my boss has told me, you only have about five seconds or less to capture someone's eye. Mm. And, and I thought of that as you just talked about, it's a very short time that we have to, you know, to, to capture people. It, it, it's, and it's true. And so you had to do something that was going to capture, you know, and, and draw their attention and make them look at it and have it sink in in that very short period of time. So this message that you're talking about, that uh, it, it's a looping message, I understand, right? Well, it's definitely, I'm, yes, I'm intending for the video to be able to play on a loop. Mm. Now, when we show it in this online version, I don't know if it makes sense to show it as a loop. And we mm. haven't, like, we're not 
We're like 99.9% of the way there, but I'm pretty sure, yeah, we said we're not showing it as a loop on this. Website. I think, yeah, we discussed about it. And it's actually interesting that um, it touched on this viewing experience. And uh, um, it's actually what we are trying to explore for this project as a whole as well is uh, what are the available viewing experience through this uh, screen space? And um, and I think Ascaranati's project is one of it. We think about. It, I think normally would think it would be make sense if in the gallery space, right? If we play on mm. a monitor and mm. we would want it to be looping and mm. looping and looping. And uh, but it's a screen space, which um, and it's a complete different relationship we have we with the screen and whether we want to give the control away or we want to have the control of how the viewer will interact with that. I think that's why we're kind of 99% at the moment that um, it will not be a looping and right. in the controlled way, but it will be a more open and embedded window, which including um, um, play and stop <laughs> buttons. Mm. Yeah. Ah, okay. Okay. Very interesting. Um, I want to come back to some of the things uh, that both of you were talking about there, but um, you know, one of the things that stood out, uh, Yen, was when you said even that we are currently sitting here looking at our computer screens, talking to someone we can't see, but we are still creating that space. And, and of course, our minds are helping us create that space that allows us to envision uh, this, this, I guess, this, this conversation we're having somehow. And um, so how... How do you guys envision screens then in terms of, uh, are they just a flat surface for you? Right. And uh, I guess for me, I'm going to use artist's work in this project <laughs> to explain. And because I think um, these projects really opened my mind. Mm. And uh, as, uh, like I said, the architecture of this space and what it can be. Mm-hmm. And so last week we launched the first commission, which is by um, Oliver Hossein. Uh-huh. And so what he did is, um, um, I'm not sure. I think he has a piece in the viewing room at um, Real Asian Film Festival and digital installation. Mm-hmm. And if anyone interested can go there and see it, it's called the French Exit. So it was, um, he worked with a group of dancers and then to create this um, interesting layered moment. And what happened is that he bring, he brought the same crew and the cast back and then uh, did a live. Mm. Performance. Mm. I don't even know how to term it because I think it's kind of beyond and um, um, existing terms and uh, description of what uh, this type of uh, uh, work can be. And so basically, they were each in their own rooms and wear the same costumes, and uh, and then the uh, and the editing of the image is along the same similar line as what they were exploring in French exit. But it's um, so every stream comes to Oliver's home computer, and then he live edited it and manipulate image and layered every single stream on top of each other oh. and uh, and also at the same time he performed in it and mm. then live stream the whole thing actually I cried when I watched wow. it because I was so nervous and because yeah. there's so many variable in there whether it's going to work on that yeah. it's turned out to be beautifully it was a really interesting Piece and you think, and uh, this is the screen space, yeah. and uh, uh, it's a decentralized but centralized at the same time, and then cultivated in that moment. So that's what I learned from Oliver's piece, and uh, it was fascinating. And then tonight we're going to launch an um, uh, uh, actually. Uh, uh, um, 
Annie McDonnell and uh, Maida Fortune's piece, and it's to celebrate some, well, it's not really celebration, but uh, I would say it's in a celebratory tone of work by Lee Lozano, this um, conceptual artist from the 60s and 70s, mm-hmm. and because um, her birthday is on November 5th, and uh, which is the 90th birthday of Lee, but she died mm-hmm. in uh, 1999. And so they created this piece and uh, to reflect on um, a lecture Lee did at NASCAD in Halifax in 1971. And she delivered the lecture at the time and over eight hours in three states, um, uh, sober, um, uh, high on weed and uh, stone on LSD. So I think um, they um, they're going to create this um, live stream a piece they make together that draw on a language and uh, a film and um, narrative and um, also uh, 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 together and image making and uh, to recreate and revisit that lecture Lee did mm. and also I think both uh, interesting is both uh, Annie and Maida they teach and nowadays when you're teaching and um, it's, um, the terms are using are the synchronous and asynchronous and they add one more to it is uh, um, polysynchronous and so how this uh, one uh, less than hour long and live performance live stream the performance can capture all the different elements and uh, of the moment we're living through screen space mm-hmm. uh, um, um, so that's another, and also it's interesting is um, they they this approach and also become a platform and for them to think about narrative as form and feminism and um, um, and also the way which language and image can shape each other and within this great uh, screen space but embodied in this character and uh, Lila Zano and uh, the last one is um, John Sasaki's work and Open 24 Hours. It's also a very interesting way to think about it. John, I think John is also a conceptual artist, I would say, and uh, um, he commissioned through this online um, a platform called Upworks and uh, it's, it's, a, it's a website for freelancers and the clients and to be directly connected. So, and it's a US-based um, um, website. So he went there and uh, commissioned 24 freelancing videographers around the world, literally around the world and each to create a one hour long um, video and uh, would be considered as a self-portrait and uh, talking about themselves and what is important to them and during the time of COVID. And uh, then we put uh, all these 24 videos and uh, in the viewing room online and uh, 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 it will be unveiled on November 12th. And um, it's it's also an interesting way to think. Basically, become 24 little windows or keyholes and uh, we can peek into at least 24 individuals space but at the same time to think about this precarious labor of freelancers and at this time because in canada we're lucky there's something like surf and um can support um, this choice of living, but in many of the countries and uh, um, covered in this project, it doesn't really have this um, um, benef- uh, 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 safety net and to support this type of work. And some of them actually uh, was not freelancer, but because of um, the time we're living now and become become freelancer and with no choice. And so it's um, to me, you asking me about screen space and uh, then these artists really expanded and um, um, what screen space can become. It's not only the present and it's not only about now and here. And I think of what beautiful about uh, Scarbonati's work is that it's even bringing future and the past back to this 
moment are present. And I think when, um, and also this window become not just um, out of necessity. It's not only just about communication. And I think about what uh, I love about Discover Nadi's work is also this healing power. And, uh, um, and also these, because these screen space, the time we're living right now, it's make us to feel like there is a sense of, it's, there's, we all trying to live this moment and going through it. It is not an easy time, but, uh, but the message and uh, she's giving and uh, we're looking at it, which will be unveiled on November 19th. And uh, this message from the future or from the past or from the present, whether which way you would like to think, it's really helping us to going through it. It's also, I would say, it's emotional portal too. So to me, these like these projects, different projects really opens and um, different meanings and what these screen space can be. Wow. <laughs> That was, that was great. I don't know what to say after that. That was fabulous. Um, I got a huge smile on my face as you were talking there and describing all of that stuff. It sounds so wonderful. Uh, and I didn't want to interrupt you because I, I have to jump in and say I am speaking with uh, Yan Wu. She is the curator for this uh, Immaterial Architecture online exhibit, uh, a virtual art museum. And uh, it's part of the um, art museum at the University of Toronto and it's happening uh, started on October 29th and goes until November 19th. Also on the show with us is Skawanadi, as you just uh, heard referenced uh, there from Yan Wu, and uh, she's talking about her work. And wow, wow. Uh, it sounds so exciting, and thank you for that wonderful description. I love the idea of that interactive live performance, multi-screen uh, in separate areas. sounds so wonderful and so magical. And uh, like you say, uh, so... Uh, is something about that just you, you don't know what's going to happen they're in different spaces uh as you say it, it pulled you, he pulled it off and it's it sounded wonderful is this going to be available to see online uh you know after after the events are are, are um are finished yeah um oliver's is already finished and that's also the other thing we're trying to explore is um um for the art museum's perspective too is all these commissions are part of this idea of a mm. virtual museum mm. and um then also how what are the terms for these commissions in this sense? And because it will be easier if it's something in the physical space, we will say we'll just exhibit, ex exhibit this work for this period of time. And But when it goes to the virtual terms and um, um, how should we present it, and also for Oliver's piece and um, including um, Annie and Amida's pieces coming up, and it's important for us is... Um, um, we would like to present work in a more controlled environment, which means it just you cannot stop it and you cannot replay it or you cannot skip and fast forward. And, uh, and uh, uh, so, which means uh, we what we did is we had a, a live screen, a live stream, and then follow up with um, two, three replays. And uh, now the project is not um, um, publicly available online. And but if anyone is interested in the work, and uh, you can contact us, and uh, we can open um, a private viewing room for you. And uh, but it will be more like in the private screening context. <laughs> you know, um, Scalinati Yan uh, really uh, described your work uh, as as linking the past, present, and future. But also, you described the healing power of it. What would you say? That was about? a surprise. That was a surprise to me. <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy that yeah. she feels that way about yeah. it, though. Yeah, yeah. 
I think it's possible. You know, I just feel very lucky to be able to have kind of images that come to me and artworks, I guess, that come to me and that I get to express them and show them to others. And, you know, they can see some of these things in them that maybe wasn't exactly the goal when I, when they came into my mind, you know, mm. but if that happens, it makes me very happy. Right. Now, the other thing I was thinking of when we started this conversation were the challenges that people would have to, you know, go up against in, in this. But actually, uh, Jan, from what you described in terms of how the artists are, are utilizing this idea, uh, it sounds like they've overcome the challenges and really taken it beyond uh, to... Uh, in, to, to incorporate this, these screens uh, in in live ways that I I didn't think that you know that, that I I just didn't cross my mind in, in terms of that. It reminded me of uh, live performances of musicians that come together to uh, create you know do a song live in different parts of the world. Yeah, actually, it was one of the inspirations because mm. I remember at the beginning of uh, the lockdown and. Uh, Everywhere and uh, everybody is trying to connect and also especially in the performance, not only musicians and also Saturday Night Lives, right? Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, uh, so I was, uh, I was, I was talking to Barbara, which is like, I watch everything. I have the TV on, like monitor on the, all the time mm-hmm. and just to see what people are working. And I think Barbara was also very fascinated to see is uh, these collaborations mm-hmm. and how these collaborations come together. And um, before we were thinking about at the very beginning and and um, that's just trying to show how wonderful artists are. Mm. I think at the beginning, Barbara and I were thinking about maybe it's a screen space. When we first conceived the screen space, I think it was more limited. We're thinking about Zoom room. Because mm. I think a lot of the performance you mentioned right. was actually happening in the Zoom room. So we were actually quite fascinated by this. Um, um, we're living in the world, but then literally the world becomes flat and, and the flat on the mm. screen and everybody is in the grids and yeah. the communication is happening in the grids. And I remember Barbara was saying there's some, she saw some performance and so not only performance and uh, uh, literally people were passing things along the screens. And to create these connected moments. So um, that was our starting point. So we went to the artists and to see how they feel about the moments. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, we just uh, described how we feel, what we saw. And then they came back with ideas mm-hmm. and in response. So that was the part. To I love this process of a commissioning. And mm-hmm. to think about what commission means. It's not about giving instructions and giving directions more about and uh, think about a situation that um, that everybody can share and then and it's just a literally starting point and uh, to see how artists can use these moments of this situation a scenario and grow out of uh, some beautiful things out of it there, there's so many more things we could talk about but I do want to um, um, because we're getting close to the end of our time but uh, and, and that is the use of sound sound and how it can pull us into the screen. Uh, and I, I say that because I, I went to see one of the trailers for this, and as I was watching it, it was, it was a screen with water and rain, but the sound really brought you inside the screen. Would you agree with that? Yeah, absolutely. I think um, it will be... Yeah, I'm going to do a little bit preview. And uh, I, um, 
It's it's really the sound and Oliver sound. I think it's layered. And mm-hmm. also, if uh, I would like to um, open the, send her the link, and I think you should watch it. And uh, um, it creates uh, it controls the mood and emotion. Mm. And I think um, that's also to think about um, Scavenati's piece. And uh, I, I don't want to give too much information. <laughs> I want people sure. to watch it. And uh, but I think a sound is uh, also element. And even for Annie and Maida, and um, um, these uh, three states they want to achieve: sober and stone and high. And I think a sound mm. and um, played a role. Mm. And it's part of immature architecture. And mm. if we come back to mm. the topic. Mm. And uh, and then um, John Sasaki's, and uh, you will see these 24 videos and from all around mm. the world and a different approach. Mm. And actually a lot of stock music because mm. um, it's a freelancing right. um, videographer and to fill up these 20 an hour long. And you can see. So it's really, and uh, your emotional shifts. Right. And to be in the different spaces. We're going to have to leave it there, but it's been such a great pleasure speaking with both of you about this wonderful uh, online virtual museum uh, exhibit that you guys are, are doing. So uh, congratulations to both of you and to the, the Art Museum at the University of Toronto for this. And it's been a real pleasure having you on the show. Likewise, thank you so much. Thank And they are the voices of uh, Yan Wu. She's the curator of the Immaterial Architecture Exhibit at the Art Museum at the University of Toronto. It is ongoing until November 19th, started on October 29th. Also here with us on the show was the voice of Skawanadi. And we've had her on the show before. And uh, she is one of the participating artists that are taking part in this exhibit. You can check her stuff out. It's going to be on Thursday, November 19th. Greetings from Skyworld. This has been Moment of Truth with David Moses. Element. Element. Element FM.